I was astounded because look, it's a time of global shared horror. Can't we please put these petty nationalist differences aside and work together for the betterment of humanity? And the answer from my friend, you think it's astounding they're not? Of course they're not. Now here's the bad news. This government isn't doing a great job being global in their thinking either. Now we're not we're not hacking anyone's shit. We're not stealing their IP. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. Um, but we're certainly not being as helpful as I would like to other nations right now, other efforts. We're being more nationalistic as well. RP, welcome. Good to see you. I'm going to start. You, I'm going to start with this trip if I can. Um, yeah. Let me show you this. I'm excited uh, to hear about it. So we leave. I leave tomorrow morning. Um, I'm going to, I'm in a, for the first part of the trip, I'm going from here to Ann Arbor, Michigan with another guy and we both have our motorcycles. We're going to do the first 14 hours. We're going to do a study of an interstate versus a blue highway. So we're going to do interstate day one in a U-Haul with our motorcycles in the back. And then from then on, it'll be all blue highways. Um, and we'll end up in Lake Atasca, which is the source of the Mississippi. And that'll happen on the 21st of July. And then our first event at night is on the 22nd in Minneapolis. We have back-to-back -back shows. They're not shows, they're conversations in Minneapolis on the 22nd and the 23rd. And you can see all the dates here. Um, and then we'll end up in New Orleans. You'll see there on August the 2nd, and then we'll make our way back from there. Um, you know, I want to thank the people from Sloan have been incredibly supportive to us, by the way, RP. They're making all this possible, so I want to thank them. Um, oh, wow. Um, yeah. Really? Great. Yeah. Good. Yeah. They're, they're the best. Yeah, they've been great. Um, let's, let's, do, can we, let's do a show. Let's re, we keep talking about this. I want to do a show on Graham Allen, CEO of Sloan's message on Vimeo to his employees and what he's done with the mayors, the DAs and the police chiefs of the towns where they employ thousands of people, how he's asked them what they're doing to address police brutality. Cool. Yeah, I like that. Um, and you know, the first, the first, our first uh, meeting is with Keith Ellison, the um, attorney general of Minnesota. And then each night we have, um, a gathering of a mixed group of people and they're it's conversation driven neil phillips and simon greer are the two guys out front neil phillips who some of you may remember rp and i had neil on a few weeks back he runs visible men uh, down in florida just an amazing guy and simon greer was um he was in the obama administration he was the chief community organizer in the obama administration but he's played a variety of roles but he runs these things called courageous conversations he's as good a conductor of a powerful conversation as I've ever, uh, yeah, powerful conversation as I've ever seen. Um, and then we're traveling with a, a whole group, 14 people. And then each night it's relatively small because, you know, we're trying to be COVID safe. Um, but the gatherings at night will be about 15 people, uh, more closer to 20 people. And then 12 of us will disappear. Those two will be in the tent and we'll, and we'll back away and just again, COVID and trying to keep it safe. Um, so this is exciting and, and it's, uh, it ha it's not easy when you're doing something like this in any case, and I've done a lot of live production work, it's crazy. It's really hard. Um, when you layer in COVID, 
it's it's intense it's just intense and and this is probably since the very beginning of the outbreak been the most negative media about covid uh since the start of all of this anyway so you and i haven't checked in in a couple of days but you know the the news continues to be pretty profoundly not that hopeful do you see any changes over the last few days that are significant Well, I mean, on the course of the disease, let's let's, you know, look, we, we have all these numbers showing that case incidence is going up. Right. So more and more cases are spreading. I think it's like 37 states now have growth. If you look at the map of where the disease is growing, where it's not growing, I think there's two states where it's going down Connecticut and maybe like something north of us. Every other state, it's flatter going up. It's going to, unfortunately, almost certainly start to go from from down to flat, if not up in New York for you know obvious reasons, school, getting back to work. It's, New York is just impossible to really contain it too hard. So so there's the bad news is, yeah, the numbers are going up for cases, right? What we have to watch extremely closely is the death count. Obviously, that's an ultimate measure of what matters. Um, there's a lot of hope out there. There's people writing. There's there's the people on the edge who keep saying, you know, the doubters one way or the other. And they keep saying, where's the death? Where's the death? And, you know, the testing's only going up. The, the number of confirmed cases is going up because testing's going up. That's actually a good thing. And the deaths aren't following. And I want so badly for them to be right, but they're not. And unfortunately, the death numbers are starting to come in. So the deaths are starting to come, uh, unfortunately. So... But let's, you know, literally pray that a lot of the cases right now that are positive and people that are getting hospitalized, let's pray they don't become ICU patients. Let's pray that if they're on the ventilator, the dexamethasone works. Let's pray that if it doesn't, that the remdesivir works. Let's pray that they don't die uh, and that the, that the, the ultimate fatality rate continues to go lower. And it is going lower. The case fatality rate, that's the small denominator number. That's the people who present to doctors people who present to hospitals or ultimately people who ultimately die are counted as cases. Let's hope that the fatality number there goes down. So it was very stubbornly in America, 5.6%, then 5.2%, and it could be dropping into the fours right now, which would be great. Obviously, 5.6 to 4.6 is not a 1% drop. That's like a 20% drop. So it's a big deal. So let's hope that that happens. If it does, it's because of the the innovation and the brilliance of our healthcare workers, and also because younger people are getting infected and because more testing. So let's hope that that's optimistic. Optimistically, that's what we have to hope for. And then, you know, masks, right? Let's get the masks on. Uh, and there is some real changes there. We have um, Governor Abbott of Texas, who initially was almost ridiculing, I mean, his lieutenant governor, his guy, uh, was ridiculing mask wearing, ridiculing the disease. A month and a half ago now they've come around and they might mandate mask wearing and they've talked about doing lockdowns so lockdowns suck lockdowns are bad for the economy bad for humans but uh, anyway i think what you're seeing on the optimistic side is people are getting more responsible i think debates about masks are going away people who were arguing it's masks are being exposed for the idiots that they are you know harsh word but true um and let's wear masks and uh let's distance and but ultimately, no, not a big change. We're still on a negative trend. Do you um, have you been following at all this this European Union? You know, Trump talked about it as a the travel restriction. 
No, no, I, I'm talking about it. I, I, I'm going to blow the words he used, but that, you know, it's set up to be a foil to us and, you know, described the relationship in such negative terms. But um, I'm, I, I'll, I'll tell you where this came from, just logically. I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm trying to get my head into the place of wearing a mask as bad because that's part of what we're dealing with, with here. I mean, you look at, you know, Brian Kemp from uh, Governor, uh, uh, from Governor of Georgia has said that counties and municipalities cannot, because certain municipalities within Georgia has, have mandated certain mask wearing requirements. Yeah, horrible and, behavior. And, and the governor says they can't do that. So, hey, I don't know what Georgia law says. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. Well, and so it's core. Like, what's happening here? And and all I can think is this is like a tribal behavior because it's very hard for me. I, you know, I, I, they, I'm assuming in Georgia you have to wear a seatbelt. This isn't like an unprecedented thing to ask someone to wear a mask. So what is happening? What's at the core of this? What's the motive to be to speak so negatively of the European Union? Um. And is it just a hatred of all things left? Like, what's happening here? Uh, I, let's say there's three reasons. So let's say um, there's probably three buckets of people who don't want to wear masks. And one thing we've talked about before is that the massive, massive majority of people don't make up their own minds. 99% of people do not do their own research. They do not do their own reading. They do not do their own writing and they don't make up their own minds. They follow their rabbi, they follow their priest, they follow their union leader, they follow their sports team, they follow their celebrity, maybe they follow a politician, maybe they follow you. They follow a parent. Um, and the folks in the world who decide, hmm, okay, here's some points of view, I'm gonna research them, take the time to make my own point of view, it's, it's a scary, tiny number, and it gets to the evolutionary, bio evolutionary biology of us being herd animals. You know, 90% of our brains is a herd animal brain, 10% is a human brain, right? Those are just facts. In that site, you've got a lot of folks who are just following someone. And that's like, that's their native instinct. It's, you know, nose in the tail of the horse in front of them. And um, so then you get to the, why would leaders argue no, no masks? So one, perhaps simply a cognitive capacity issue. Like this is a brutal thing to say, but studies show folks that literally have less education and less cognitive capacity tend to correlate to folks who are anti-mask. They just don't get it. They don't believe it. They don't understand it. That's part one. Part two would be the don't tread on me mentality, which is one I hold. Like I am a don't tread on me guy. Yeah. Unfortunately, that flag is now, that was a flag of America, by the way. That was legitimate American flag. It's now being taken over by right-wing extremists and even neo-Nazis. Um, but the don't tread on me ideology of America, like individual liberty, libertarianism, this is me, I'll do what I want. I see some argument there, except to your point about it's not that you're wearing a mask. I'm not forcing you to wear a mask to protect yourself. You know, that's up to you. If you want to protect yourself or not, if you want to, you know, a libertarian would say, you can't tell me not to use heroin, for example, right? A libertarian point of view would say, I want to do whatever I want to do. I'm in charge of my body. I'm a cognizant adult. And the relationship between me and my government isn't that you nanny state me into anything. I do what I want. Cool. As libertarian, my leanings in that instance, I get it. But when you're putting other people at risk, no dice. You can't stick a hair and needle in everyone else's arm, right? You wear the mask to protect other people. So the don't tread on me thing falls down, obviously, because you're harming other folks. 
but that's a that's that's one, a third argument, second argument, uh, and the third argument is just conspiracies, right? And so the conspiracy theory that and remember we talked about before conspiracies come out everybody's the hero of their own novel no one's the black hat in their own story right and conspiracies come from us trying to own trying to put sense in a place where we don't have control or sense so you name the conspiracy it's actually someone's attempt to understand and control things they don't control so the conspiracy around masks and around the diseases oh my gosh why is america in so much trouble why is the president i like the conspiratorial person would say, President Trump doing so poorly. Why, why is all this data showing me that this is we're failing compared to other countries? Well, it's a conspiracy. And the only thing I can understand that locks in my own beliefs, the frame set that I live in, the things I, I can't challenge a certain set of beliefs. Trump's okay, Republicans are right, you know, whatever that is. I can't challenge those things without feeling a literal visceral pain. That's who I am, I can't challenge it. These conspiracies allow me to, to go at the perceived reality and my deeply held beliefs, the conspiracy is what allows those to connect. Uh, so it's a cognitive tool people use to make sense of a, uh, a world they don't understand. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care what the reason is someone doesn't wear a mask. There's something about pandemics and epidemics where you all of a sudden realize that there's a reason we have government. And this is it, right? The reason we have government is so that some collection of us can say, we're going to follow rules we naturally wouldn't follow. We are going to now wear masks, for example. Unfortunately, we're going to lock down certain stores, you know, whatever it is. We're going to figure out how to protect the elderly. We're going to compile money to go build a vaccine. You know, this is an instance where the immaturity of extreme libertarianism becomes obvious because you need to have some degree of humanitarianism, community, to do this shit. And that's what we have to do now. So I don't care what the excuse is. Um, we went to a town in Connecticut yesterday. So, you know, our travel from Idaho across a number of states, the Midwest states, you know, you, you literally go from signs on doors that ridicule for wearing a mask. Don't come in my store with a mask on unless you're the Lone Ranger. And I told you I'd send that to you. I'll send that to you. Don't come in unless you're the, with a mask unless you're Lone Ranger. I walked in with a mask. The lady looked at me like I was evil. I mean, it was so negative. And then we walked into Pennsylvania in a store, big sign. Thank you for wearing a mask to protect our coworkers. Do not enter without a mask. And then I was in a town in Connecticut yesterday. So we're moving from west to east. And they had blocked the street off and all the restaurants had put um, tables in the street. It was awesome. It's great. It was it's awesome. Great. Everybody had a mask on unless they were sitting at the table. All the tables were socially distanced. Nobody was screwing around. I mean, and there were, of course, there were teenagers out hanging out. They all had masks on. There is servers, everyone had masks on. I was so impressed. Now, what's the one state in the union that for the last few weeks, and I don't want to jinx it, that last few weeks has gone down and down and down in cases? Connecticut. Deaths, down and down and down. Economic recovery, up and up and up and up. So I don't know what your argument is not to wear a mask, but you're dooming your economy, you're dooming your job, you're dooming your relatives, you're dooming grandpa. I saw some sign somewhere, it's like, throw grandpa some love, put on a mask. And that's what we got to think about our grandma. You know, I read something great. I'm going to read it here. I saw it the other day. A friend of mine put this up and it says, just wait until conspiracy theorists discover that they're part of a conspiracy theory to use conspiracy theorists to spread disinformation via conspiracy theories. That's what but you know, that's true, right? And it's true. Right. And I have friends exactly. who this is what they do. They don't even know they're doing it. 
You got it. And look, look, there's a story that everyone should read. So there's, I, it'll take too long to do it. Comment ping pong pizza in Washington, D.C. You know the story, Tom, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There was someone hacked into John Podesta's email. He was the head of Hillary Clinton's campaign. In his emails, he kept saying, let's order a cheese pizza. Hey, what's up? Who wants a cheese pizza? Who wants a cheese pizza? C-P, C-P. Apparently, that means child prostitution. So people were hacked into his emails, kept reading cheese pizza. That's an acronym for child prostitution. Oh, my God. The guy's got child prostitution going on. These guys are running child prostitutes. And, 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 and the place he kept ordering pizzas from is Comet Pizza in Washington, D.C., which has been there for decades. You've probably been there. It's got a ping pong table, right? And so... This poor guy in North Carolina, father of two young girls, again, the hero of his own movie, not a black hat, not not in his mind a crazy. And by the rest of his life, not a crazy. He got into this, got into this, got into this. Now, here's a question. Who's promoting this? Who's the bot? Who's pushing the story over and over and over? Russia. So this guy in North Carolina thinks he's his ultimate patriot. He thinks he's going to go save a child pedophile. It's a series of children from a pedophile ring. He thinks it's up in uh, Washington, D.C. He gets in his car, gets an uh, you know, assault rifle, drives up to Comet Pizza, walks in, shoots three rings, rounds off, boom, 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 says, where's the basement? Because they've all convinced themselves on 4chan inside their little conspiracy world that there's a child prostitution ring in the basement. This poor guy shoots the door off this this thing he thinks it's the basement the guy's like there is no basement there is no, obviously no child prostitution ring this guy finally comes to his senses the police surround the area he's about to die he walks out he's in prison now so he of course he is right he thought he was gonna he was a a, a witting fool right he was inside a conspiracy to build conspiracies to build a conspiracy theorist all fueled by russia it's exactly what they wanted that happened read about the guy don't be that guy to any extent don't believe it don't act on it it's all so much of it's bullshit. And there are evil anti-American forces out there trying to drive us apart by using all the tinder, all the gasoline we're laying out in front of uh, them to drive us apart. And I, I bet they were drinking vodka shots and high-fiving in Russia when they saw this guy doing this. It's exactly what they want, right? So you got it. It happens. And that guy's in jail. His life is over. And his two little daughters don't have a dad anymore. Yeah. Well, so um, Russia stealing coronavirus vaccine information i think you said it before but of course right there's part of me that says of course and part of me that says man oh man so we've talked before about vaccine nationalism right so we talked about particularly china if china comes up with a proper vaccine before we do That'll be the equivalent national pride to them as us putting a man on the moon. I mean, a humongous opportunity for national pride. The premier, the leader of China, she needs this, wants this. Every leader does. And they're going whole hog to build one. China has already been caught with their hands in the cookie jar hacking American vaccine efforts. Russia. Nowhere near the medical infrastructure of the United States, nowhere near that of even China. They're trying to hack our stuff, too. So I was in a conversation with an old colleague of mine, an old mentor of mine, one of the great national security leaders in the U.S. government. I won't name him because I didn't ask him if I could about this. And I wrote, like, um, look what China's doing. This is astounding. And he wrote back, astounding? Weird word. And I said, yeah, you're right. It's not astounding at all. Of course they are. China has been stealing American IP for 30 years. Um, and Russia has tried as well. They're just not as good at it. You know, look at Russia, as John McCain said, 
is a gas station masquerading as a country, right? Their, their, mass, their, their entire output, their GDP, everything is largely petroleum. They don't, when's the last time you saw a Chinese phone or a Chinese TV, sorry, Russian, Russian, Russian phone, Russian TV, like that's not their thing. All the tools I'm looking at behind you, Tom, not one of those things was made in Russia. They don't make anything, right? And so they're not going to be able to make a vaccine either unless they steal the whole plan from us. But I was astounded because, look, it's a time of global shared horror. Can't we please put these petty nationalist differences aside and work together for the betterment of humanity? And the answer from my friend, you think it's astounding? They're not. Of course they're not. Now, here's the bad news. This government isn't doing a great job being global in their thinking either. Now, we're not, we're not hacking anyone's shit. We're not stealing their IP. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. Um, but we're certainly not being as helpful as I would like to other nations right now, other efforts. We're being more nationalistic as well. So it's, you know, under, under stress, we revert to type. We talked about this in our first call. Under stress, we revert to type. We, we bring in the defenses. We huddle up. America has been really good historically at not doing that. We're doing it right now to our... To our, to, our, to our shame to some extent, but also it does us a disservice. America benefits when we're out and engaged and helping. So no, I'm not surprised Russia's doing it all. They're not going to get anywhere with it. Yeah. But they literally, they literally might be intrigued to get in and screw up our process, right? I mean, they really, really want us to be in a mess. Back to my point about Comet Pizza. Yeah. Fueled by Russia. And so RP, and then internationally... South America, apparently, is a lot on fuego. of on fuego. Yeah, and is that just poor leadership? So it's it's there's a correlation, obviously, to density of people, which also sometimes correlates to poverty. So that's one thing that leads to a spread of disease. Um, there's and there's a correlation just to bad leadership. Is the most powerful correlation probably is, you know. It'd actually be worth doing this properly, like getting the real answer. The real answer is the countries that have listened to the healthcare experts, the public health experts, the epidemiologists, those are the countries that have fared well. The countries that have doubted the experts are the countries that have fared poorly. Um, and then there are some anomalies, right? So India listened to the experts. India is having more trouble than they had before, but they they aren't arcing, thank God, the way a lot of people predicted they would. And it's because they did listen to experts, but they have massive density, massive poverty, um, but they're doing better. Brazil is a horror show. Uh, Venezuela is a horror show. And those are also countries led by really inept, basically corrupt leaders who doubted the disease. So, you know, doubt the disease, don't listen to the experts, and people die, your economy gets crushed. Believe the experts, have a plan, act on it right away. Don't doubt the science. You're South Korea, you're New Zealand, you're Australia, you're Germany. Uh, you do well. So it's that. And remember, get on it early. And these countries haven't gotten on it early. And the fact that they are they are not so much Brazil, but other countries are poorer, obviously means it's going to be much harder for them to come out of it. So they're probably headed for, you know, take the population of those countries, multiply it by times four, and then subtract 30%. And that's probably the number of people who might die in those countries um, as they head towards, you know, forced herd immunity. Um, it, it's going to be dismal. 
Do we have any? Do we have any news yet on um, immunity itself? I'm about to get my test. Yeah, well, back. there's a big question on immunity. So there's a whole list of what we call known unknowns, right? So just all the things we wanted to learn about this disease we need to know, right? So remember, it's like what a January, December disease. So it's a six, seven month old disease. Really intensive study in the last four or five months, meaning brand new, right? And let's not forget that most vaccines pre-COVID, and we haven't figured it out for COVID yet, take many, many years, six, seven years, decades or never. You know that HIV vaccine that hasn't shown up yet? You know, HIV has been around since the 80s. So um, it takes a long time to do this stuff right. We're hoping that this massive accelerated effort by a lot of nations will change, you know, what history tells us should happen. Um, but one of the known unknowns, one of the things that we need to learn more about is what's called conferred immunity, right? So um, I have some friends, it's a couple, they got they got SARS-CoV-2, they got COVID-19 really early. They have the antibodies in their blood. Um, how long will they be immune? Now, when you get your, for example, the, one of the vaccines that every kid gets in America called the MMR vaccine, right? Measles, mump, rubella, mumps, rubella. And that vaccine, basically, you don't need a booster. Don't, don't quote me on this, but I don't think you need a booster. You get the MMR vaccine as a child. You might have to get one more booster and you're, you're done for life. You will not get measles. Like that vaccine is, whoosh, you have conferred immunity forever. Um, it, it appears, unfortunately, that people who ha have had the disease at some point, maybe within a year or two or less, can get the disease again. We don't know if they'll be as sick. We don't, first of all, I don't know if that's true. We're not sure, but there's a lot of reason to think that might be the case. So other coronaviruses tend to have a very short conference of immunity or conferred immunity for a short period of time. It's why you get the cold. People get the cold every year. Now it's a different cold every year, but the cold is a coronavirus. That's why there's no cold vaccine. Um, so the bad news is people walking around who say, hey, man, I got it, I'm good. You might be good for a while. I hope you are. If you want to get a little more complicated, I'll add one more paragraph. So people who, it turns out that the worse your disease was, like the sicker you were, basically, the more antibodies are in your blood over time. So if you were, you know, super sick at death's door, you may still have a, let's call it a large amount of antibodies in your blood in three, six, seven months. Of course, six months being the longest we have to study. Um, if you were asymptomatic, you may have no antibodies in your blood in three, six, nine months. You may have no evidence that you had it. And if you're lightly symptomatic, again, you may have no evidence. So then the question is, you know, so eighth grade science says, or maybe freshman year science says, no antibodies, no immunity. It's not quite that simple. You could have other mechanisms in your body that still give you immunity that we can't test now. So either we don't know what antibodies to test for, which is very possible, or T-cell or other immune system activation could give you a leg up. We just don't know. So, but it is unfortunately possible you can get this disease twice and you can get it. It's unfortunately possible it could be within a year or two or less. And would that same set of, uh, would it be the same for, for the vaccine? Is it, is it essentially the same yeah, thing? Thank you for obviously great point. Um, we don't know. Depends what the vaccine is. It means it's very possible that a vaccine that shows up Either so, you know, 
pray to God we get a vaccine that works. Pray to God that we don't politically get pressured into launching a less than perfectly effective vaccine. Like we, you know, we 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 don't rush out something that's we don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good, but we need to have good versus not good, right? So we have to find that measure where it's effective enough because the distribution and manufacturing capacity will largely get built, used by one vaccine. So let's hope that we get the right one. And we just don't know yet how long it... Now, it, by the way, it's possible. There are some sciences, there's different types of vaccine science being used right now, and, and some that are novel. There's, there's, in fact, the two most... Op, the, the two vaccines I'd be most optimistic about are using mRNA technology, which we've never used before in a vaccine. So it's a novel technology. It makes tons of theoretical sense, and it appears to be working up to almost phase three trials. That's really, really good news. There's a variety of sciences being used for vaccines. I don't know yet. I don't think we know yet if those will give you lifelong immunity or how long it will confer immunity. We just don't know yet. And that's part of what you figure out in the trials. Obviously, you'll never, you're not going to know perfectly, but you know they can build models around how long the immunity will be conferred. We don't know. When you think about the acceleration of the effectiveness of the treatments, are you optimistic there? I am. Um, treatments versus vaccines. So remdesivir is proving to really be effective in severe cases. It, it shortens the amount of time that you would spend in the hospital. That's the best study on it right now. And there's some extrapolated data that it reduces fatality, which is what we care about. So that's positive. There's um, dexamethasone, which clearly reduces fatality in severe cases. That's great news. So these are existing compounds, existing molecules that, um, and again, this is an example of accelerated science. So decades ago, even maybe 10 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to study all these compounds so rapidly to see what works, but because of AI and a variety of other tools, we're able to look at certain compounds now and identify potential candidates to help with the disease. So dexamethasone is a steroid, right? Remdesivir makes sense. It's an antiviral that didn't work against Ebola, but those work. Um, so I'm optimistic about those. So those are for severe cases. And then you have what are called monoclonal antibodies, which is the synthetic creation of these antibodies I mentioned before. Um, that is promising. Um, it's too bad that it's not accelerating further, but you know, if we, for example, if we end up with no good vaccine, that's another track that could help confer immunity for a while, could help with treatment for a while. Um, so that's positive. And then there's very similar to monoclonal antibodies. There's basically, there's a more technical name for it, but basically the transfusion of non-synthetic antibodies into people, which is, uh, you know, as old as the 1918 Spanish flu, we were using this idea. It's how we used to treat smallpox. Um, and other things where you literally take the blood of a recovered person and put it in the blood of a sick person. And that actually works because, you're, again, you're bringing those antibodies in. So those are all looking positive. Um, and as I said before, the death rate, the CFR, the case fatality rate in America is going down. That's partly because of more tests. So so bigger denominator, uh, sorry, bigger numerator. That's partly because of... Um, a younger cohort, which we know is definitely healthier when exposed to this disease. And it's probably because of better treatments. So it is going down a little. I read an article in the journal. I don't know if you saw the one about the doctor in the Rio Grande Valley, but it, re it reminded me of um, 
the, those letters I used to read from Zach, my friend at Columbia Hospital back when. Yeah, right. We're in there. They're in that. They're in that stage now where the hospitals are filled and people are dying each day, and they're dealing with the issues related to um, people dying alone. You know, not with their uh, relatives. Um, there's something. It, there's this a beautiful irony of the internet that is. All of a sudden, all of the information was our fingertips, and all of a sudden, the information became less useful. Because we know this, we know this exists, but for some reason, if you live in Texas, and you don't, well, let's say New York, if you live in New York, and you don't know what's happening in, even though you can find out what's happening in Milan, Italy, it somehow doesn't impact you the way it might until it's actually right in your neighborhood. So in these parts of Texas now, the culture is starting to react to it because it's come home and people are feeling it and seeing it and understanding what it is. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon. It's the same story going back to what we were talking about earlier, this question of masks. And unfortunately, this question of masks gets all mixed up with politics. You know, it, it's mixed up with things that in many ways it has nothing to do with. Um, and so information overload creates these scenarios whereby these things happen. And by the way, there's another side of that argument. I'm sort of speaking to the need for safety, which I'm all about. I'm all about that. There's another side of me, too, that is with an understood baseline of what safety is, you can make good decisions on the things you should do. Because I'm, I'm pro try to open the schools. Let the kids go to camp. Let people go to work all intelligently and, and for some reason it's turned into this either or battle not entirely but largely which is just a bummer all this information and we can't get a good plan together well yes all this information um but sometimes too much information and too much disinformation so again if you have a deep-seated need to believe that, I'll just use this example, that like Donald Trump makes the right decisions. Like if you're like, look, I believe, I'm with 39% of Americans that say, this is my guy, he's a hero. You know, um, I trust what he says. I, I have a Rambo t-shirt, you know, a t-shirt of Donald Trump dressed as Rambo holding a 50 cal, he's my hero. And I saw those t-shirts in South Dakota. Um, yet this, Yet somehow I keep seeing on the media that he's doing a really poor job with this disease. Then how do I make those two things work? Well, the Internet not only has the right information, it's also got lies and disinformation. So I can go to the Internet and I can find sources that tell me what I want to tell me, tell me what I want to read, that still keep me comfortable and make me not have to confront uncomfortable truths. So, yes. And, and, and you know, there were theorists of the Internet as soon as this thing popped out that said this is going to happen and they were right. Um, so if you, and that's where you get to this question of expertiseism, right? Who are you going to trust? And that's a cognitive skill, right? One, to know what you don't know, and two, to know who knows it, and three, to know how to listen to them and how to learn. And um, that takes time. Like, you know, you and I were educated on those things. Like a good school, when I look at schools for my kids, my boys, that's what I want them to learn. I want them to learn how to learn. And that's what I just described. What don't you know? Who knows it? How are you going to learn it? And the Internet makes that hard because, my God, there's all sorts of people who pop up that seem super credible um, and hard to know if I should listen to them or not. And, my God, I fall for it. You know, my, my family certainly falls for it and a lot of people fall for it. Now, you, you and I both probably spend a lot of time fielding 
I got one yesterday from a fantastic senior Wall Street analyst. He sent me an article. It seemed great. And it was this whole thing about you only need 20% for herd immunity. And it was so well written. It had graphs and everything else. And it took me, I haven't even replied yet. It's going to probably take me another half an hour to show why it's wrong. And it, it is, but it was so well done. And not by a kook, by a person who's trying to help. I end up in those things. I find these things so curious. I mean, it's, it is the story of our lives that curiosity matters. And at certain times, yeah, you make certain bets on certain people for sure. I think that's a good lesson. And yet I'm still always curious about, you know, the thing I always say, I always say this to my team, like all of a sudden someone will come along and say, that's not what a black hole is. It's this. Well, I didn't know either time when it was the old way or the new way. I have no idea if they're right or they're wrong. But when someone comes along and says they were wrong, well, then I think, okay, well, then just about anything could be wrong. Um, And that keeps me curious. I keep reading those kinds of things because I've read a lot of those articles. I've read articles and, and, you know, stories about 20% herd immunity. And, And as you say, by the way, this is not like the pandemic video. That was crap. It was crap. It was poorly made, too. Some of this stuff is actually pretty well made. And by the way, some of this stuff is scientific. It just may be bad science. And some of it's not a scam. Some of it's not intentional disinformation. It's people who are, you know, God love them. They, they are doing their own thinking, right? But they yeah. just are wrong. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. There was a PhD from Woods Hole, which is an oceanographic institute in Massachusetts. I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? They study the oceans and marine life. And that's what this guy's an expert in. He was the first cited author in a massively read piece from J.P. Morgan. I think it might have been Morgan Stanley. I always get them confused. That was, I don't know, a month and a half old that said shutdowns don't work. The disease isn't so bad. Um, shutdowns hurt in more than they help. And Sweden's got it right, basically is what this piece said. And the first stated study in there was a non-peer-reviewed study about a virus written by an oceanographer. Now, is that oceanographer a bad person? Of course not. Was that oceanographer trying to help? I think so. Was that oceanographer, you know, like a PhD in some degree of statistical science and has some credibility to chop numbers? Yes. Was he right? No, he was wrong. So what do I do, right? Like here's a PhD who, who can, you know, do, you know, fantastic Bayesian modeling and argue, you know, all of a sudden can outclass me and the science he's arguing and he seems compelling. What do I do? Well, I probably go, eh, you're an oceanographer. Like I'd prefer to listen to a viral epidemiologist, epidemiologist, and it's hard to know how to find the right folks. And that's, that gets back to our book about Cassandra's, right? Like there's a lot of examples of these. So we all kind of go for, Oh, he's a PhD. He must be right. Or she's a general. She must be right. Well, no, not always. Are they specifically expert for decades in the topic in which you're asking? And do they have a clean track record of prognostication and leadership on this issue without a lot of false warnings and without getting it wrong? Ah, listen to them. And here's bad news. The head of the CDC, Redfield, does not meet that criteria. He has a bad record on policy leadership as relates to public health. He was on the wrong side of some critical issues around HIV AIDS. He's the head of the CDC. That's partly why he's not in the mainstream right now, uh, in the media. It's why Fauci, who's head of a different institute, um, is the one who at least was the leader of the scientific conversation in America for a while until the Trump people decided to try to malign him, which is absurd. 
You know, yesterday I spoke with a, uh, a, a friend who's very senior in um, the real estate world. And um, a long story short is that when you get into the realm of commercial real estate in America right now, it's a bleak picture. And, you know, real estate is among the places where you can see some really good, you know, bellwether information. Um, it's, it's scary. It's scary. And par part of what we're witnessing right now, you know, there were these immediate impacts and you see it in, reflected in jobs. But then there are a series of impacts that businesses like a lot of businesses are pretty good at saving for a rainy day. Well, if it rains for 70 days, that's a different kind of rainstorm. And this rainstorm that we're in right now, it's pretty intimidating where this could go. It's going to have a profound effect on a whole variety of things. And, and economically speaking, you know, one of the things he said to me was like, I've been through all the recessions. He's an older guy. He said, but this is the one like you, we just don't know how and when this ends, which makes it very scary. So I'm reading a lot of the, the news on the economy. Um, there's things we know, but there's so many things we don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is this is um, it'd be very fair for anyone, including your real estate friend or any major business leader to say this is such a long tail event or what Nassim Taleb, if I'm saying his name properly, calls a black swan event, meaning sort of like a totally random out of the blue. Holy Moses, where did this come from event? An unpredictable crisis. It, it would not be unfair to say that because that's what most business leaders are saying. But they are wrong. This is not a black swan event. This is not a super long tail event. This is a super predictable event. And as you know, you know, Lori Garrett, who came on our show, predicted this event in startling detail. I have, I have it here just because I'm reading it. This book by Larry Wright, the end of October, which came out just recently, um, predicts an event very, very much. It's a great novel, and it predicts an event very much like this right now. Bill Gates gave a speech in 2017. This book, or 2015, this book, 2017, lays out the risk of a viral pandemic specifically. The, the White House plan we made in 1996 lays out the risk of a viral pandemic specifically. Uh, Obama had a plan like this is so I spent a lot of time with business leaders for decades and, and government a lot of time with business leaders and government leaders kind of looking at what's the outlier event that we need to be thinking about and where do we take our limited resources and where do we invest and um, the U.S. government had in the late 90s and for a while properly invested into this outlier event and then we started putting less and less money into it to the point where we didn't have masks anymore. We didn't have ventilators anymore and we didn't have the staff anymore. And here you are. So you get what you pay for. This is not a black swan event. I don't think there are basically any black swan events, by the way, I would love to have Taleb and I'm sorry, I'm not saying his name right. Nassim, maybe it's Taleb Taleb. I'd love to literally find one real black swan event, a totally unpredicted catastrophe. You could argue about this disaster that the black swan event is the economic shutdowns that were necessary to do this. But even that's not that was totally predicted as well. So I don't have a ton of um, actually I have no 
um, forgiveness for government leaders who weren't prepared for this because it, this should clearly have been in their playbook. I have a lot of, what's the word? It's not forgiveness. I have a lot of sympathy for business leaders who weren't prepared because you can't run an efficient business and have six months of capital sitting by. Your shareholders will never stand for it. That's not what you're supposed to do with your capital. And any large corporation, there's no way they can do that. Um, it's a, the, literally, the tax structure of the United States doesn't allow that to happen, particularly for LLCs, S-Corps, individual proprietary, 80% of the American businesses. You can't store money in the business, which is something we need to figure out. You can't store money in the business. You have to get taxed on it every year. So you can't put away a rainy day fund in an S-Corp or an LLC or, um, you know, corporations like that. And that, again, that's 80% of American businesses. So I have a lot of sympathy for those characters. I don't have sympathy for governments who weren't prepared for this. I've got to prepare for my next thing. RP, thank you. We're going to, so our next one of these is going to be on the road. Um, now I go out there. Um, the RP just got back and now I go again. Um, but I look forward to seeing you. Uh, I'm so excited to follow your trip. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. And I'm really excited that Sloan Valve and Graham Allen, Jim Allen and Kirk Allen were supportive. That's awesome of them. They're my, my second family, really charitable people too. Thanks to them. And, and, and I look forward to doing this with you. It's going to be, um, I think it'll be really interesting. And, you know, we're, we're just, if anyone's curious, we're, we're taking a lot of precautions. I haven't gotten my test back yet, but everybody, no, no one's, no one's COVID positive yet. Um, but we're, we're going through all those steps and we'll update you on all that. So. Yeah, we that, got tested yesterday. Oh, you did? We're all good. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Okay, guys. We're going to a new community next week and everyone who's going there is getting tested before they go. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Tom, have a great trip. I look forward to talking to you on the road. Congratulations for doing this. Uh, I hope you get really uncomfortable in some situations, and I hope we all get stretched from it. All right. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.